Hi there, this is Scholar Minor, a podcast about myth, magic, and occasional miscellany. My name is Ursula, I'm your host and fellow learning enthusiast. In the hollow tree in the old gray tower, the spectral owl doth dwell. Dull, hated, despised in the sunshine hour, but at dusk he's abroad and well. Not a bird of the forest e'er mates with him, all mock him outright by day. But at night when the wood grows still and dim, the boldest will shrink away. Oh, when the night falls and roasts the fowl, then, then is the reign of the horned owl. One of the most interesting things about superstitions and traditions is that they can vary from community to community and from family to family. And in my family, seeing an owl has always meant good luck. My parents have a beautiful rural property, and while owls are probably around fairly often, it's rare to catch sight of one, silently passing overhead or watching you from a tree branch. But when I do see one, every time I am awed and a little spooked. As evidenced by our introductory poem snippet from 18th century English poet Brian Proctor, owls have an interesting reputation in folklore and superstition. Tonight, we'll be learning a little about them and their relationship to the mysterious in-between. Thanks again for joining me, and I hope you enjoy. Species of owls are found on all continents except Antarctica, with the barn owl, Tito alba, and the short-eared owl, Asioflamaeus, the most widely distributed. Owls are able to adapt to nearly every environment, with great variations in size, diet, and habitat present between species. Because they are nocturnal, owls have had an easier time surviving in areas populated by humans, compared to their raptor relatives like hawks and eagles. Owls are nocturnal raptors, with most species eating small rodents, though some of the tinier types will eat insects instead. Though there are many different varieties of owls, they do share common characteristics when it comes to appearance. Flat faces and large eyes and small hooked beaks. Many birds have their eyes on the sides of their heads, giving them binocular vision and the ability to see about 300 degrees. For perspective, humans also have binocular vision, and we can see a field of only about 180 degrees. Owls, on the other hand, have forward-facing eyes, and many have a smaller field of vision than even we do, about 120 to 150 degrees. This may seem at first like a hindrance, but owls adapted this narrow field of sight so they can see with incredible clarity even over very long distances. This is because both of an owl's eyes can focus on the same object at the same time. Their impossibly accurate vision and ability to turn their heads 270 degrees make them formidable hunters. Contributing also to their hunting prowess are the owl's wings. On the ends of their wings, owls have special feathers that end in a very fine, flexible fringe. This fringe allows air to pass silently over the owl as it flies, reducing aerodynamic noise, and allowing it to effectively sneak up on prey. 
If you're looking to find an owl hangout near you, try looking for owl pellets. When an owl catches a small animal, like a mouse or a small bird, for instance, anything the owl can't digest is thrown up in a compact little nugget called an owl pellet. These contain fur, bones, and feathers because an owl's prey is usually swallowed whole. Owls appear in art dating as far back as 10,000 years ago. As you're probably aware if you have a child or were a child, owls in popular culture are often associated with intelligence and scholarly owls are a frequent presence in children's entertainment and advertising. Interestingly, owls have had this reputation for a long, long time. The Greeks believed that owls were the favorite bird of the goddess Athena, who was the deity associated with reason, wisdom, war, and the civilized world. One of Athena's epithets was Glaucopus, derived from glow, which translates to little owl. Glaucopus is also sometimes translated to blue-eyed, which was one of the clues, along with archaeological evidence, that Greek statues were often painted. Traces of blue have been found on the eyes of some of Athena's statuary. Some very old depictions of women with heads resembling those of owls have also been found, but debate remains among historians whether these figures were intended to be owl women or just regular carvings of women that deteriorated badly over time, losing some facial features. Little owls, Carina noctua, are a species of owl common in Greece, and it was believed that one of these owls sat on Athena's shoulder, revealing the truth and knowledge of the future to her. Greek soldiers considered a sighting of a little owl before battle a sign of the goddess's presence and blessing. As Athena's attendants, owls developed a strong reputation for possessing vast prophetic wisdom and knowledge, and this association has stuck around until today. Unfortunately for owls, around the medieval period, public perception of their character and motivations dipped, and they had a rough couple of centuries. Encountering an owl in the wild is a pretty awesome experience. When you catch them watching you with their giant eyes, it's easy to imagine how they've been able to make such an impression on their human neighbors over time. While the Greeks associated their all-knowing and otherworldly gaze with wisdom, folks in the medieval period got a little spooked instead. Owls are well known for their haunting vocalizations, which can vary from somber hoo-hoos to frightening screeches. Their secretive ways, silent flight, and striking appearance all combine to give them a mysterious and ghost-like quality. Further cementing their medieval reputation as something otherworldly was their nocturnal behavior, more specifically their tendency to be most active at dusk and just before dawn. This connected the owl to liminality, an idea which has made humans uneasy for millennia. Liminality is an anthropological term derived from the Latin word limen, meaning threshold. 
this term refers to periods of transition and was first coined by French ethnographer Arnold van Gennep in his 1909 work Les Rites de Passage, or the Rites of Passage. In this publication, van Gennep examined traditional rites of passage, like those observed in the grieving process following a loss, the transition from childhood to adulthood, and other ritualized observances of these big life changes. Anthropologists have sought to flesh out the concept of liminality since Gennep's studies, and it has come to represent not only the observances of transitional periods, but the feelings of uncertainty and unease that arise during those periods. And it turns out that humans have a tendency to feel this disquiet even during everyday transitions, even in places that are changing or unsettled. If you've heard the term liminal before, it was probably in the context of liminal spaces. Liminal spaces are thresholds, in-between places, that are disorienting and feel off. And boy oh boy, when it comes to liminality in all its forms, this last year or so has provided us with an overflowing list of examples. In the midst of the COVID pandemic, I was hired on at an upscale restaurant in incredibly busy downtown Sacramento. That is, it used to be busy. While it's gradually returning to normal, I've been at my restaurant just under a year. And when I first started, it was during the height of lockdowns and exponentially increasing infection rates. Even aside from coronavirus, I was reevaluating priorities, changing careers, moving back to the city after a couple years away. I remember walking to my first shift through streets that were holding their breath. A place I've lived for a decade was suddenly different. It was quiet, it was waiting, and it was weird. The restaurant was doing primarily takeout and the tables were closed. Storefronts were empty. Plazas were still meticulously manicured, despite not a soul being visible anywhere. That is liminality. The discomfort that comes from change, the unease, the wondering what's to come. Our ancestors didn't refer to this phenomenon as liminality, but it was recognized. Transitions between phases of life, between seasons, between night and day and day and night, marshlands, foothills, crossroads. These are all examples of what folklore would recognize as times and places where things are shifting and unsettled. Uncertainty has always made humans uncomfortable. We like to know what's happening around us, why and what to expect next. So transitions became associated with the spiritual world in many folk traditions. Paranormal activity and events are still tied to liminal time and spaces. Consider the Twilight Zone series. The strangeness of liminality was projected onto the creatures that inhabited these spaces, the owl being a prime example, and will forever have an association with other. Drastically different from its prestigious days as Athena's wise attendant, the reputation of the owl had become pretty grim by the medieval period. British Goblins, Welsh folklore, fairy mythology, legends and traditions, published in 1880, tells us that Wales's mythological corpse bird, or the Adderin Ecorf, was a wingless and featherless creature occupying the land of illusion between our earth and sky, a liminal space. It is said to summon death, like a grim reaper of sorts. 
As British Goblin's author, Vert Sykes, informs us, this corpse bird may properly be associated with the superstition regarding the screech owl, whose cry near a sickbed inevitably portends death. Variations of this superstition pop up everywhere, and owls were very nearly synonymous with ill omens. Even our old friend, the Encyclopedia of Superstitions from 1903, doesn't have many nice things to say about owls. In Germany, we are informed, exists the belief that to hear an owl hoot for several nights at the same spot in the woods was a certain sign that someone had been murdered there and buried under the tree where the owl sat. The shrieking witch owl that doth ever cry, but boding death and griefs herself inters in darksome graves and hollow sepulchres. Some folks in Western European traditions didn't consider white owls birds at all, believing them instead to be spirits of the human dead in animal form. And interestingly, this is not an isolated tradition. The Cheyenne, an indigenous people in North America, consider only one species of owl, the short-eared owl, to be a bird. Other owls are corporeal representations of spirits. Owl feathers would be attached to shields and clothing for protection and had great ceremonial significance. Other indigenous peoples, including the Lakota, Omaha, Fox, Ojibwa, and Menominee, consider owls to be embodied spirits or facilitators of communication between the living and spiritual planes. Owls are sometimes considered the guardians of the transition between life and death, acting as psychopomps or spiritual guides to the afterlife. Due to their close relationship with the spiritual realm, an encounter with an owl could be a sign of great transition or impending death. Remarkably, on opposite sides of the world, the owl developed very similar associations independently prior to any communication between these cultures. Though it is safe to say that the reputations of the European owl suffered, their connections to the spiritual world resulting in villainization, rather than respect like their indigenous North American counterparts. The following wonderful description was published in the 1893 volume Birds of Omen in Shetland. The author recounts their first exposure to a snowy owl in person, colloquially referred to as the Katie I never got over my early impressions regarding the creature, and these were of a most ghostly nature, being associated with winter, darkness, the death of a neighbor, and whispers of the Katie being sent as a warning. When I saw its living self, that confirmed my childish belief in its supernatural character. A large, lordly bird of snowy plumage with solemn face, bespeaking a mind wrapped in contemplation of nature's mysteries. He did not move his burly person when the curious observer went round to inspect him. He merely turned his head and followed with that unwinking stare of mingled feelings. I hope you enjoyed our venture into the strange world of the owl and learned something new about owls, anthropology, or maybe even both. As always, I am so grateful you are listening. You can find past episodes and additional content on my website at www.ursaminorcreations.com, and my email and bibliographical references are in the show notes. 
Episodes are also available on the Scholar Miner YouTube channel for your listening, subscribing, and sharing convenience. Have a great week, everyone, and I look forward to learning with you again very soon.